Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I say good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors around here, and it's, it's wonderful to have you all here this morning uh, on Sunday morning. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the very first time or anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. Well, before I get into the message this morning, uh, each week I've just been sort of giving you uh, updates on our More Than We Can Imagine uh, building campaign. For those of you who are new uh, or visiting with us today, you might be interested to know that we have a unique opportunity to purchase this place. We got a great deal for it. And so our plans are to purchase this place in September. On September 4th is our closing date. We've been working with our architects and banks to get the money to purchase and remodel this place. And so we've been really, really excited about that. And we began our giving campaign on April 1st. I believe that was Easter Sunday. And God's been really, really good to us. And last week I told you that we had gathered almost $112,000 in just a few short months. And I told you that the bank told us that uh, our closing day, we need to bring $200,000 to the closing table, which is something that I believe that the Lord will do for us through us, right? And so I said that last week. And this week alone, uh, over $20,000 has come in. And so our total is... Now, $132,000. And so, listen, you know, I know most of you. We, we're not people of, of, of means, right? We, we're not rich people, right? But it, we are people who believe that this is what's next for our community. This is uh, what the Lord has set before us. And I just want to say thank you. I can't say it enough. Thank you for responding in faith and sowing generously into what God is doing here because I know it'll be fantastic. And so continue to pay on your pledges. If you are new around here and you, you'd like to get involved in this, there are pledge cards in the seat backs in front of you. You can just fill those out and drop them in the offering uh, bucket. But more than any of that, would you just continue to pray, as I asked you last week, that the Lord would just open the windows of heaven and pour out tremendous financial blessing so that we can continue to pursue and to press into what's next for us. And so I thank you very much for your continued prayers and support. Well, after uh, being spotted uh, by the California Highway Patrol, a man named Rodney King, anybody remember Rodney King? A man named Rodney King took police on a high-speed chase through the San Fernando Valley in March of 1991. Some of you remember this incident, but this incident might not have ever, you know, be, be stored away in your memories were it not for a man named George Holliday. And George Holliday had one of those old school, you know, camcorders, right? The type of camcorders that have the date on them, right? He didn't have his iPhone, didn't have a slick smartphone. He had a camcorder uh, because when police caught up to Rodney King, they gave him the beating of his life. And some of you remember watching in the early 90s the harrowing footage of Rodney King being struck time after time after time. And the public outcry was so great that the officers were eventually charged with using excessive force. But they were later acquitted of all their charges, which ignited racial tension across the country. Some of you remember watching the footage of riots sweeping through Los Angeles, buildings being looted and burned. I will never forget watching the video of Reginald Denny. Some of you remember Reginald Denny, truck driver, was in aerial footage, you know, news helicopter caught the aerial footage of Reginald Denny, a white truck driver, being dragged out of his truck, beaten, hit over the head with rocks, craziness broke out all over Los Angeles. And sort of in the middle of these riots, uh, Rodney King, who had been beaten by the police officers, took to the news. And some of you remember his tearful appeal to the public. And he said simply through quaking voice, tears in his eyes, he said, can we all get along? Can we all get along? Famously misquoted as, can we all just get along? If you're old enough to remember this incident, you might also be old enough to know that this quote, can we all just get along, uh, is a general plea for peace. And long after the Rodney King incident, if we would have had the internet back then, if we would have had sort of memes and things like that, this would have easily been on a meme that slapped onto a conversation that was getting out of hand. This was easily what was said to people who had been shedding their civility and going after one another. People would just routinely sort of generically say, hey, can we all just get along, right? Which is just a way to say, hey, can we treat each other well? 
Can we be calm? Can we love one another? Can we be at peace? And so I can't think of a more appropriate time to dust off this phrase uh, than the time we live in right now, right? I mean, we live in a moment in time where the demographic pie has been cut in so many different slices. I don't think you can cut it anymore. Or we're more defined by what we're against than what we're for. Family drama is at its all-time high. Political division and strife, a growing contentious debate about immigration reform and what to do with immigrants, those coming into our country seeking asylum. Like, this is tension in Washington, tension in our local governments. Like, like, there's no better time than now to dust off Rodney King's phrase, can we all just get along? Because we got unrest in our homes, unrest in our churches, unrest in our governments, unrest in the international community, I think this phrase is more than appropriate. And because of that, I want to begin a brand new series that I'm simply calling, Can We All Just Get Along? And so if you've been uh, hanging around this church for any number of years, you know that usually our custom is to take some time in the summer to talk about a very important life subject, and that is relationships, right? We really value relationships in this church when we consider what our purpose is on the earth, to love God and to love people. We realize that at the center of those greatest commands is relationship, to be in right relationship with God, and equally important is to be in right relationships with one another. And so because that's why we're here, to be in good relationships, we feel it necessary, aside from just the regular diet of preaching, where we bake in wisdom and bake in helpful instruction on how to get along well with one another, we feel like we should spend a, a huge chunk of time each year intensely focusing on our interpersonal relationships and how we can, in, in a more excellent way, get along. And I, when I say get along, I don't mean just sort of patch things up, just sort of play nice, but I mean in a deep and abiding way to get along, to live at peace with one another, to be in harmonious relationships with one another, because I believe that that was God's design. We need to peel away and talk about relationships because our relationships matter. It's true that for better or for worse, we will be forever shaped by our relationships, right? Our families of origin, the person that we date or marry, the people that we surround in our inner circle of friendships, right? Our vocational relationships, we will be shaped for better or for worse by our relationships, and we will have a profound impact on the people we're in relationship. They will be shaped by us. And if this world is going to get any better, I believe that the Lord is going to use us to get that done. And because of that reality, we need some faithful instruction from heaven with regard to how to relate well to one another. It's for that reason that we carve out time each and every year to discuss relationships. And each and every year, I feel the need to say that this is not information so that you can help other people be better at relationships. Right? This isn't ammunition for you to fix somebody else. I say it every year. This is stuff. This is a mirror for you. This is helpful instruction, uh, conviction, challenge, encouragement, so that you might, in a deep and abiding way, work on you. I want to begin this series this summer by talking about a subject that I don't think we talk about enough. And I say we, I mean us as a church, but I say also us uh, as a society, particularly the Christian church. I want to talk about the subject of honor this morning. I'm talking about the subject of honor because I feel like in some meaningful way that if we don't get honor right, our relationships won't function. If we don't appropriate learn, appropriately learn to honor one another in the appropriate ways, I don't think uh, that we'll get it right with one another. I don't think our marriages will be right. I don't think our child-parent relationships, our child-grandparent relationships, and on down the line, I don't think we get that right without honor. Honor, simply put, is valuing others, respecting them, right? I think honor is basic and fundamental, but, but sometimes we try to get busy with doing all the other stuff of love, 
skipping over honor, making sure, you know, without making sure we've checked that box and really uh, checked our internal systems for showing honor and respect to one another. And so we fail at relationships over and over. We keep trying, but I feel like we need to go back to square one this morning and talk about honor. I'm simply calling this message this morning, Start With Honor. My conviction is if we don't start with honor, we won't get the rest of it right. I want to look at a passage of Scripture this morning, Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 12, would you meet me there in your Bibles this morning? Romans 12, talking about starting with honor in relationships. Feel free, by the way, to use the Bibles on the edges of your row if you don't have a Bible. I won't be at all offended if you're interacting with the scriptures on your tablets or on your phones. We also project the scriptures up on the screens. You can follow along with us in that way. Romans chapter 12, while you find it, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to bring your word to your people. Father, I thank, thank you for the grace that you've given me to hear, receive, and respond to you by bringing this word today. Father, we need your help. Uh, we are by nature fallen, by nature sinful and selfish. And Father, we know that there's no way that we can get this right without your help. So would you teach us this morning? Uh, Father, would you go before us this morning, make the crooked places straight? Father, would you remove anything within us that might cause us to blame, excuse, or justify, to bristle at the truth? Father, we give you permission to speak to us in whatever way you see fit. And Father, would you give us the grace and courage to respond in faith in a way that you would find pleasing to the words you speak today. As always, I pray, Father, that you would put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Romans chapter 12. This is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, it's helpful to understand that Paul is trying to help God's people in Rome be godly, even though they live in a godless uh, society. And by godless, I don't mean that they were without gods. They're actually polytheistic peoples, but, but they were lacking in, in, in their society, in their customs, in their practices, uh, Rome, the, the, the worship and attentiveness to the desires and the will and the prescriptions of the one true God. And so Paul is trying to help the church at Rome uh, rise above their social customs and norms and the godlessness there and to press into a place of living and loving as God sees fit. Romans chapter 1 reads this way, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he, God, will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. He continues, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Verse 6, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Now, verse 9 is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So listen carefully here. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight. Hear that? Take delight in honoring others. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. I tell you, uh, and I'm sure I've told you this before, 
But Romans 12 has got to be one of the richest texts in all of Scripture. And I'm assigning the rest of Romans 12 for you to read as homework throughout the week. Don't let me down on this, okay? Romans 12, one of my favorite texts, is so rich. And one sentence is encouraging you, urging you toward a more excellent and deeper faith. And then the next sentence, it pulls up a mirror and it like slices you and convicts you with the truth of who God is and who we are and, and like nudges us toward a holiness and Christ-likeness. This is the preacher's dream on one hand and the preacher's nightmare on the other. It's a preacher's dream because there's so much in here. It's a preacher's nightmare because there's so much in here, right? You really got to be disciplined and focused at this text. Otherwise, you could be all over the place because there's so much here. But I want to zero in on just sort of the opening verses of this because it's like foundational, right, to our understanding of who we're supposed to be in response to who God is to us. Paul opens in verse 1, says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you, to let them be your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He continues in verse 2 by saying, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God, what, transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And in the opening verses of this particular chapter, Paul points to the gospel uh, as something that's designed to be transformational. Paul submits in our hearing and our understanding that the gospel is designed to be transformational, which is why I can't understand for the life of me how you can sit in church for 20 years and be the same person you were, <laughs> right? 20 years ago. Or you can come and lift your hands and sing and go to a small group and carry a Bible so big that you need like luggage wheels for it uh, and not be a different person than you were. We have a deep conviction in this church that if you engage the gospel and you let the gospel engage you, if you engage Christian community and you let Christian community engage you, you will look back after three months, you will look back after six months, you will look back after you and say, man, I don't, I, I'm a different person. I'm not the same. I still got some work to do. Some of you do. Many of us, all of us have work to do, yes. But you say, my goodness, I'm a different person. Why? Because the gospel, if you lay hold of it, right, and you let it lay hold of you, it is transformational. And Paul said, don't forget this. Paul said, don't forget this. And while we're at it, one of the surest signs that you have laid a hold of the gospel and that the gospel has laid a hold of you is that you will see transformation in your life. If Christ is being formed within you, you will live differently. You will see the world differently. The fruit of that transformation is holy living, living that pleases God, a, a Christian distinctiveness, as we talked about several weeks ago, deep transformation that Paul says in verse 2 starts where? In the actions? No, Paul says you're transformed when you let the gospel, the truth of God's word, change the way you what? Think. In other words, there is a re-hardwiring of your innards, of your guts, of your heart and your emotions, your thinking, how you view the world. That's where deep transformation takes place. And without spending too much time on that, Paul continues by suggesting that the fruit of that transformation is readily seen in how you engage the world around you. It, it, it's, it's evident in how you treat people in the world in which you live. He continues in verse 3, because of the privilege and the authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. In light of what he just said, in light of submitting your bodies, in light of being transformed, in light of Christ being formed within you, right? Paul says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. In other words, don't be your biggest fan, right? In other words, chill out. You're not that awesome. I know your mom told you you're great and you're fantastic, but, but Paul says, in words divinely inspired by heaven, don't, don't, don't spend so much time in the mirror. Don't be so impressed with yourselves. 
Don't think you are better than you are. What does Paul know? Uh, Paul knows that if you have a, a too high of an assessment of yourself, you're going to just dump on the world around you. Paul says, one of the surest signs that you haven't been transformed is that you don't have an appropriately low view of yourself. I'm not talking about low self-esteem. I'm just talking about a measured assessment of who you are, good, bad, and ugly. And so I present to you today, in light of the subject on honor, in light of the subject uh, of being transformed and walking this out in a more excellent way, that one of the, wor- one of the ways we're called to do some diagnostic assessment is to, 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 to ask ourselves whether or not we've been transformed to the point where we don't think we're better than we really are, where we're eager to let God's Word be the standard by which we measure ourselves. And we don't measure ourselves by ourselves, and we don't grab somebody out of the gutter, set them next to us, and measure ourselves by them. We look into the mirror of Scripture. We look into the mirror of God's standard and let Him be our measuring stick. This is how you, to put it crudely, this is how you get over yourself. And this is the very beginning to seeing people in the right way and living in a more honoring and excellent way. I don't think our world will ever have peace outside of this. I don't think our churches will ever have harmony. I don't think the races will ever get along unless we are deeply transformed by the gospel such that we see people the way we're supposed to see them. And in the light of this, I think, Paul, when we finally get down to uh, verses 9 through about 12, which is like the heart of what I'm going to focus on today, I think Paul gives us three powerful tips uh, for those of us wishing to seriously engage a life of obedience with regard to our relationships, to start where we're supposed to start, and that is with honor. And I think that these uh, tips and these truths from Paul are some of the deepest and most valuable secrets to living the good life. And we call the good life around here the life that with Jesus, you know, peace with God, peace with other people. We're not talking about houses and cars. We're talking about the life that God intended for you to live. Paul gives us some insight. I want to briefly jog through three things. The first thing Paul says is really, emphasis on really, really love others. Really love others. If you've been around church your whole life or for a long time like me, one of the things the church can teach you is how to pretend. Among the things that you get skilled in pretending is that you're fine when you're not fine. Pretending that you're okay when you're not okay. The whole world is falling down on you. You're contemplating suicide. Somebody say, how are you, Sister Jones? You say, oh, I'm blessed. It's like a natural response is what I'm supposed to say. You can learn to be fake, right? You can also learn to pretend to love people when you don't really love them. You can learn to go through the motions of love and to smile at the right times and wave at the right times and say the right churchy things or the right things. But what Paul understands, which is why he gives us this instruction, is that you can do something for real or you can do it for fake. And Paul says, if you're going to like show honor, if you're going to really have excellent relationships, you have to really love others. And what we find in Scripture is that this command to love is timeless. It's as necessary now as it was then. We see it all throughout the pages of Scripture. And if you learn anything here, you know that our goal, our purpose is to love God and to love people. It's foundational. It's fundamental. It's basic Christianity. But what you've probably learned if you've just been alive more than two or three years is that it is hard to love well. It is hard to love well thoroughly, deeply. It's hard to love well consistently, right? The ups and the downs, the the betters and the worsts, through the sicknesses and healths of life. It's hard to love consistently. And because it's hard, we've learned to fake it. Because it's hard, we've learned to fake it. Uh, but it's one thing I learned is that fake lovers will always be found out. And life just has a way, doesn't it? Of pressing up against you, pressing up against you. Life has a way of proving whether or not your love is thorough, proving whether or not, proving to you and others, by the way, whether or not your love will stand the test of time. Love and life has a way of testing you, testing you with conflict, 
testing you with struggle and tension and, and disagreement. These are life's great tests of love. It's evident in our dating uh, relationships, in our marriage relationship. You just slipping through the flowers on your wedding day. You're drinking a milkshake. You know, don't, don't bring me two cups. Bring me two straws so we can just look at one of them. And then something happens. And then somebody says something. It's, it's one of great, love's great tests. Child-parent relationships, you know, child-grandparent relationships are just so cute. You watch them sleep, and they just look so peaceful and beautiful. You're taking pictures, and, it's and then they wake up, and they're themselves. Right? And smacking their teeth and ungrateful. And we don't want broccoli. We want pizza. And it's like your love is what? It's tested. Friendships, church life, at work and at the office, and even strangers. Oh, you just love one another and you just have such great feelings toward one another. Listen, I love all the people who are. Jesus loves all the little children. Yes, we'll go on missions trips to Puerto Rico, missions trips to, to Mexico. We'll send money over there. But then they come knocking on the border. Then they want to come here. And maybe they don't knock. Maybe they sneak in and they bring their families with them and it's, all of a sudden love is tested. Our affinity for the stranger is tested when they when they come knocking. Life and love has a way of testing whether or not your love is deep enough. Whether or not it's strong enough. Every aspect of relationship is tested. And so Paul says, in light of that, verse 9, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine, genuine affection. Supposing, of course, that love is the very first step. It's the greatest command. It's helpful to understand that love isn't just this sort of warm thing that you just sort of slap onto something or slap onto somebody. I like to say that to love somebody is to really see them, like to really see them. Can't love somebody without seeing. Can't love somebody without seeing them in the right way. And I believe that this applies to our, uh, the command to love God and the command to love others. You can't love God well in a way that's pleasing to him, appropriate to him, if you don't see God for who he really is, right? Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, what? Those who must worship must do what? Worship in spirit and in truth. That truth is that you have identified and set your heart and your eyes on the proper object of worship. You've identified that this is the one true God, worthy of worship and praise. Okay, now I can worship him. I've seen him. I've assessed who he is, and I've assessed what I need to bring to this God. I can't love him. I can't worship him without seeing him, right? And so what love looks like in response to seeing God, it looks like bowing low humble worship, right? On the other hand, what love looks like in loving people is to see them, like to really see them, to humanize them, to really see them is absolutely the first step in loving people well. See their value, to see their worth, takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where God says, let's make men in our image. In other words, people, humanity, all of humanity is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And I can't love you right unless I look at you and see the image of God. Doesn't matter whether I like you, doesn't matter whether I know you or not. If I can't look at you and see, see in you the image of God, I'm not going to love you well. I'm not. So my proper response, when I look at another human, I see the image of God and I bow, not in worship, but I bow in humility because I'm told, <laughs> I'm told, that that's my response to another person, that I'm supposed to consider them better than me, consider themselves. I'm supposed to def show deference to others. 
And they have been given that same instruction when they encounter me to see me as a person made in God's image and his likeness of much worth and value. This, this is the ballgame. There's no one beneath me. I see you. And when I see you, I value you. When I see you, made in the image of God, I value you, I honor you, I respect you. How do we manage to get this so wrong, though? If you're wondering whether or not we've gotten it wrong, we have gotten it wrong. I'm asking you, how did we get it wrong? Here's how we've gotten it wrong. Instead of seeing a person made in the image and likeness of God and assigning value and honor to them on that basis, we have a tendency as humans to define others by what they have, to define others by what they've accomplished or what they've not accomplished, what they've done right or what they've done wrong. We have a tendency to define people by who they voted for or their politics or their social media presence, right? How their kids turned out. We have a tendency to define people by external things, social constructs like race. We have a tendency to define people by their gender, by their sexual orientation. And let me just say with authority, it was never designed to be that way. All of those things matter in their place. All of those things matter because they're realities of what this particular social security number like is, like their situation, their place and station in life, their ethnicity, their gender, the whole deal. Those things are important, but God never intended us to look at a person and to define them and to assign their value and assess their worth on the basis of what they've done or what they've left undone, on the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status, on their age. The seeming usefulness to you, that was never part of the equation. We were designed to look at a person and say, made in the image of God, of much worth and value. I humble myself before you because I see in you the image of God. But we've gotten it wrong. We've gotten it wrong. And we've gotten it so wrong, and I believe Christ's aches when he sees us define people in this way because he says, that's not how I've defined you. Amazing grace came to your address, or better yet, found you in the gutter of life and rescued a wretch like you. And Christ could have easily said, well, you, you like to sleep around, that's who you are. Oh, you are dishonest on a consistent basis, you're a liar. Or you're short with your kids, that's who you are. Or or you're this, or you're that, or you're this. No, no, no. What did he see when he looked at us? Pearl of great price. So valuable that he would leave the 99 to come in search of us because he sees us as value. He doesn't define us by who we are or what we've done. And so righteous anger fills in the heart of Christ when he sees us. Defining people by their status. And so this should be one of the great tests when you see a person who's struggling in life or you see somebody that you disagree with or you see somebody who's a Republican or somebody who's a Democrat or you see or you look on, on TV and you see kids in cages and your heart is not broken within you because you see in their faces the image of God, that doesn't mean you're a terrible person, but I just think, hey, we need to check that, right? We need to check what the basis for how we assign assign value to one another because this is, like Paul says, this is how you really love people. This is how you really love them. You see them as people who are valuable. Because that's how Christ saw us. And what follows once you really love people, you put in the work to really love people, what naturally follows is what? Is honor. And the second tip Paul gives us is to delight, to delight in honoring others. Now, it's it's one one thing to say, show honor to people, right? Show honor. We like we've learned to fake things, and we learn how to externally go through the motions until that thing is tested, right? 
And Paul doesn't just say, honor others. He says, delight in it. Which means this isn't sort of arm-twisting compliance. Oh, okay, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. Just leave me alone about it, I'll do it. Okay, I'll, I'll be obedient. This, is, this isn't that. Paul, delight means like, I get to do this. I get to show honor. I get to lower myself, right? This is like to delight in showing honor. This is what it looks like to submit our body. This is what it looks like to be transformed. This is what it looks like to have a renewed mind in our relational life. We delight in showing honor. This is the fruit of looking at each and every person and saying, made in the image of God, much worth and value. We delight in honoring them. You see, the world as God sees it. What follows is the next step in this progression. We honor them. It is not complicated. Boy, boy, is it hard, right? It's hard. Paul continues in verse 9. He says, hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight, he says, in honoring each other. Now, this encouragement to hate what is wrong and to hold tightly to what is right. In some senses, if you're just sort of reading this casually, it almost seems out of place. It almost seems unnecessary, but it is totally necessary in context. Paul is saying, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. In other words, I'm not just telling you what to run away from. I'm not just telling you what not to do, evil. You should, you, like, you should run away from evil, right? Hate what is wrong, but more than just telling you what not to do, I'm going to tell you what to delight in. I'm going to tell you what to, like, with all your fervor, pursue. To hold tightly to what is right. And in context, when we read it in context, what is right is what? Love. The more excellent way is love, sacrificial love that takes work, that takes consistently, consistently that takes a thoroughness that many of us today have been unwilling to stick with. Paul says, verse 10, love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. I love how the other translations of the Bible translate that last, take delight in honoring others. One version says, be the best at showing honor to one another. Set examples for each other in showing respect. Another one says, honor others more than you do yourself. As to honor, each taking the lead and paying it to the other. Another one says, and give each other more honor than, they give your, than you give yourself. Another one says, think of others as deserving more honor than yourself. Another one, excel in showing respect for others. Another one says, be eager to show respect for others. And my favorite one is, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, Paul said, make it a contest. Let's see who can show the most honor to one another. Let's see who can get the lowest like, see, see who can be the most humble, right? These are not how our games in America play out. It's like, see who can kill, who can stumble down, who can throw the, you know, sharpest barb, and who can outwit the next person. The, the more excellent way is like, let's see who can outdo the other person in showing honor and ascribing value and dignity and humbling myself, showing deference. Let's make that the game of life. Many of us are like, I don't want to play that game. That sounds stupid. That's no fun. I know. But it is the more excellent way. And it is the fruit, the product of really loving people. It's not just playing nice. It's not just sort of, let's just get through this encounter. Let's just get through this moment. It's not that it is like, let me sit in this a while. The same love that I was baptized in will, will seep into my heart and therefore be, be the outworking of my own love and showing honor to other people. This is a lifestyle. This is how it goes. Uh, but the burning question this morning is, is this how you love? Is this how you love the person you're dating? Is this how you love the person that you took vows to have and to hold. Is this how you love? You, you outdo one another? 
and showing honor and showing respect. I don't know if you sit in that for a second. Think about your life at home with your spouse and think about your life with your kids. Think about your life at work. Think about even your relationships here in this church. Is there a, are we in competition to see who can outdo one another in showing honor? Professional life and in your friendships and how you engage public discourse and social media, things concerning law and government. Is there a, you know, outdoing, like, is that where we, I'll answer for us. No, that's not how we roll generally. But this is, this is the deal, right? Without this deep and abiding love and ensuing peace and harmony does not come. It simply does not come. Show honor, delight and show honor. And I move quickly through our third and final tip that I think Paul gives us. Third and final tip is don't be lazy. Paul has a way with words, doesn't he? Let's really love people. Delight in showing honor. And by the way, before you leave, don't be a bum. Don't be lazy. You think those are my words? I'll read it again for you, verse 11. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. It points back to delight, right? Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep praying because you're going, love needs lots and lots of prayer, right? And so again, if you just sort of lifted this passage, this, this few verses just showed up in your devotion, you know, on Tuesday, or this just shows up as you take Bible, play Bible roulette because you don't know what to read, and you just go, okay, verse 11, this is like helpful wisdom. Don't be lazy, work hard, serve the Lord enthusiastically. Oh, fantastic, that's good wisdom. Let me apply that to life. But in context... And in light of what we've been talking about, in light of where this sits in Romans 12, the, the verses that come before it, and certainly the verses that come after it, like, it has a unique meaning, right? Don't be lazy points to this notion that usually the easiest thing is not the right thing. Isn't that right? That's not always the case, but I have just found in my 36 long years of living, <laughs> that the right thing is, is, is usually not the easiest thing to do. The quick and dirty thing, whatever just takes me, no thought, no effort, whatever just sort of comes flying out is usually the wrong response. And I think that this is what Paul is getting at. He, he's probably saying to us that if you're going to do this, you're going to have to get off your butt to do this. You're not going to be sitting in your recliner, swinging in a hammock, loving people well. It's like grit and spit, right? You're going to be, put some thought into this. Put some energy into this. You got to get up to do this. Friend, uh, I had a friend at, in the church we planted out of, old, you know, guitar player named Scott Thomas. And Scott Thomas, he talked really slow right? Really slow. It's a real slow cadence. And, and, you know, people would make fun of him for talking slow. And somebody asked, I don't know if I asked him, but somebody asked him, like, Scott, why do you talk so slow? And Scott said, listen, before I met the Lord, uh, I used to swear a lot. In fact, he probably say more swear words in a sentence than like actual words. He's like, this is my, my just conversation was just profane. And when I met the Lord, that was so ingrained in me that I like, I had to talk slower. <laughs> I got to talk slower until Christ is like truly formed on the inside of me and I have a new, and so he just, I, I thought that was funny, but there's something deeper to that. Like Scott really realized that his natural defaults was something that wasn't pleasing to God. And he actually changed his speaking cadence so that he could be more thoughtful and not dishonor God with his words, right? And I come to you with that truth because it, 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 it must be said that our, that our defaults, our default settings, our out-of-the-box settings are naturally sinful, naturally selfish. There's nothing in our instincts that moves us to show honor. 
There's, there's nothing about our natural wiring and settings that go, you know what, let me not slander somebody. There's nothing within our natural wiring that says, you know what, let me not define somebody by their worst moment. Let me pick through their good moments and, and define them by that. There's nothing in our base setting that comes that way. And so if we are to, as Paul urges us, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, be transformed by the gospel, we have to just like, you know, set aside our default, like our instincts. We have to just acknowledge that our instincts are bad. And the thing usually that I naturally want to do, the things that I naturally, ways that I naturally want to respond are usually not the right ones. Now, I believe there is a time Well, we sit in the brine of the gospel and the brine of that transforming like life with Jesus. And so our instincts, right, become transformed such that our natural reactions after a period of obedience and being transformed, our natural responses, but let's not kid ourselves. Many of us are far from that. So it takes some thoughtfulness. It takes some will. We might have to wait a few minutes before we respond to that email or that text. We might have to go into the prayer closet before we comment on that political post, right? Because Christ has not fully transformed us, deformed within. And so our natural instinct, this is what Paul said, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Put some work into this. And not only put some work into this, but do so enthusiastically because this is like who we are. This is what we're made for. Put work into showing honor to one another. Because when love presents its great tests, slights, offenses, differences, disagreements, in some sneaky way, it gives us permission to back out of our commitments to honor, right? And this is why we don't assess ourselves at the high times of life. When we're loving one another and they, you know, doing what we want them to do and we're doing what they want. We don't assess at those times, right? How deep is your love? How consistent and thorough is your honor? It's tested when your coworker posts something favorable about Trump and you're, you don't quite care for the man. Or your coworker posts something that leans left and you just don't see the world that way. Like, honor is tested in those moments. When somebody slanders you, when somebody passes you by for something, when there's tension and disagreements, it's in those moments where we're urged not to be lazy, not to do the thing that comes instinctively, but instead to sit in this and say, Lord, what does honor look like in this situation? Well, my wife is driving me crazy. She's not at the moment, but I'm just... <laughs> what does honor look like? It might mean I get in my car and I go for a drive till the sun comes up. put on some worship music and get my soul right before I go and deal with that's what honor looks might look like in that particular situation might look what does honor look like when I'm dealing with kids who who are just getting on my last nerve and I'm just saying what does honor look like online and on social media like this is a question for you to ask how would I treat this person if I truly saw them made in the image of God of much worth and value it takes work It takes time. And we won't love well without putting in the work and putting in the effort and putting in the time. What would change about your life, particularly your relationships, if you started with honor? And worship team, you can come up as we close. If you're taking notes today, write that question down, please. What might change? Some of you couples are here today and you're just roommates. Hmm? You might even be sleeping in separate rooms. And I imagine that things might be different. Sure, there are deeper issues. You might need to get some counseling. But you might ask yourself, what 
what, what, what might be different in our relationship if I was just obedient to this charge to start with honor? How would I talk to her? How would I talk to him? How would I deal with his mistakes and the frustrations if I led with honor? And on down the line of our relationships, what might change? That's not for me to answer. That's for you to answer. But we can go on talking about marriage and we can go on talking about all this other stuff. But I just feel if we don't talk about honor and just set this at the foundation of all of our thinking and discussion about relationships, we won't get there. And so my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit, through these words, would just continue to do a work in your heart. And that you would allow this to like be a full length sort of 360 mirror. And you might, you know, honestly assess the degree to which Christ has been formed within you. And you might use your external relationships and the state of those relationships to measure the depth of that transformation. Remembering, of course, that these truths have not been presented to condemn you, but to convict you and to call you higher, right? And my prayer is that you will let the Lord faithfully do that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Father, that you saw us in our mess and you didn't see, you know, didn't find us by what we were doing or what we were up to, um, but you, just, you, you saw us as valuable, as worth your blood and your sacrifice and cross, Lord. And so we thank you for that. And Father, I pray that we, we would be people who would, show that same kindness and that same mercy and that same grace and that same dignity to those that we share life with. Father, for those who feel condemned or feel just sort of this ambient sense of just like sliminess, Lord, I just pray that you would break that. That's not from you. But your conviction is precise, Lord. Put your finger precisely on the relationships, precisely on the actions, precisely on the things that you will call us to work on this week. And may the gospel do a transforming work in our hearts. May Christ be formed within us so that we might be your hands and feet, salt and light to this world you put us in. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.